Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 118, and today we'll be chatting with Chris Messina, the developer experience lead at Uber. Chris is pretty much an internet celebrity, from literally inventing the hashtag to being a top product hunt user, to blogging on Medium, to having his very own chatbot, the Messina bot. We're super excited to have him join us for this episode. Chris started his career off with an interest in both art and technology. As a champion of the open web, Chris started off his career as a consultant before joining the Mozilla Foundation and helping them get to their first 100 million downloads for Firefox. Afterwards, he launched some of his own startups and side projects before eventually joining Google to work on their social products, Buzz, and later Google+, as well as their developer brand. Today, Chris is a developer experience lead at Uber, where he works with many different teams to help make it easier for developers to leverage Uber's logistics platform. Chris also coined the term conversational commerce in a 2005 essay he wrote that's become one of the cornerstone posts for this new wave of technology and interface design. He continues to write about, experiment, and share his thoughts on bots, messaging, AI, voice, and the growing trend behind many of the forms of conversational commerce. Chris joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it was like working at Google, why he decided to join Uber, and what his role there is all about, how he saw the conversational commerce trend emerging, why he's so interested in bots and messaging, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hacktostart, drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, guys. We're super excited for the opportunity to get to speak to you and have you be part of the show. So before we dive into all the cool things that you know, you're currently working on and writing about, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in New Hampshire uh, on the East Coast, actually, and um, sort of eventually made my way out to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I studied communication design. Um, I did some you know, web programming and stuff like that back then um, when I was doing some consulting, but was never a great engineer or developer, even though that's a, lar- a large part of my, my role today, and um, or at least working with developers. And then I moved out to San Francisco in like 2004. So I've actually been in the Bay Area for over 10 years now. That's awesome. So how did your passion for tech and, and you know, entrepreneurship kind of develop? Was that from a young age? So the funny thing is, I guess in, in a lot of ways, I started out being really into to art and graphic design. You know, I was like drawing comic books, like growing up and stuff like that. And um, as computers became more available, you know, I was sort of in the generation of having like the first PCs. I realized that the computer was this great tool for actually doing, you know, art and design. And so once the web came out, that became this great publishing and distribution platform for a lot of the stuff that I've been working on. So there was kind of this... I guess, asymptotic like uh, relationship between the art that I'd been doing growing up and then the tech stuff that I really got into when I was younger and um, getting into design and UX and user experience um, and product design has really been a manifestation of uh, the interest in both of those fields, the sort of technical stuff um, and the web and then uh, the things that are more related to just, you know, art, humanities and, and that side. 
That sounds like a great experience. So how did you start your career and what were some of the first jobs out of school? You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. And in some ways, I, I continue, I think, to sort of both, you know, personally struggle with a definition of what I am and, and what I do and how I work and how the Internet has affected my ability to kind of either be effective or, or not, I guess, um, you know, because when I when I finally decided to go to college, I was actually very skeptical of organized uh, education. You know, I grew up having a lot of difficulty in high school, feeling just like I didn't understand why we had to go to school, like why we were repeating answers on tests and so on. And so, um, you know, I finally, I guess, decided that I should go to university if I was going to go at all after I graduated high school, because there was no other time that I would sort of return to it. And I had one English teacher that really impressed upon me the idea that if I didn't go, you know, I might later someday regret it. And that now is the time to kind of make that choice. And so I, I did, I went to, to Carnegie Mellon and um, I went specifically for a place that could offer me kind of more of a, of a broad spectrum of stuff because I was just so interested and curious about the world rather than let's say going to an art program or a design school. And I'd, I'd applied to a bunch of design schools um, as well, but, but I chose CMU because of its breadth of um, academic subjects. And I was doing a lot of my own consulting at the time, um, doing web design websites, you know, and again, I guess I was kind of like skeptical about going into a conventional career. There wasn't, I mean, the only careers really on the internet um, were around IT and networking, and I wasn't going to be like a network engineer. So doing design on these websites seemed like an interesting future. So when I, when I left, when I, when I graduated and I left school um, and I came out to Silicon Valley, one of the first projects that I got involved with was um, the launch of Mozilla Firefox. And the reason why I got involved in that project as a, as a volunteer was because I, I really believed that the web as a publishing platform was going to be incredibly important and incredibly valuable to a huge number of people, people that didn't just kind of go along with what the system kind of told them to, you know, to do for their careers. And at the time, Microsoft Internet Explorer was like the dominant browser and was actually actively and proactively holding back web technologies for any number of reasons, probably competitive and otherwise. And so it was very important to me that the web is this open platform, this unfederated or un uninhibited or whatever um, platform where you didn't have to get permission from anybody else to publish on the web was something that needed a lot of support. And uh, the Mozilla Foundation was specifically set up with that idea in mind. And so I got to work on that and, um, you know, helped to organize the original community that promoted the spread of Firefox. And that I think catapulted my my career in a lot of ways because it put me in touch with a lot of the original web standards advocates, um, the people who really believed in the web, the the nascent open web community that was out here. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. You know, after Firefox, I helped to co-found a browser company called Flock, which was predicated on the idea of building social into the browser. Now, we were early and I think we got the, the platform wrong in the sense that, you know, you now, of course, have all of your friends um, in apps on your phone. But back then, of course, the, the dominant computing device that you had was, a, was like a laptop. And so it made sense that the browser would be the place to bring all your friends together into one context. Um, and so I spent a couple of years working on that. And that's kind of how I ended up at Google. Since then, it's just been really riding the wave of watching how people have embraced technology and how it's moved from expert systems. In other words, people who are highly sophisticated and using these tools for, let's say, professional tasks to um, regular folks who are uh, adopting technology to make their lives better or to use them for social purposes or to get laid or, you know, whatever. And, and I think it's been super interesting to just see that rise uh, over the last decade. 
So on the threat of Google, you ended up joining their team a few years later in 2010. So what was that experience like joining their team? And what were some of the projects you had the opportunity to work on? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I wrote this post upon um, joining Google. And, um, you know, if I think about what was going on then and like what's going on now. And, uh, you know, this year, of course, I, I joined Uber, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, I had previously been sort of a self-described open web advocate. And what that meant to me was that I worked with and alongside a lot of the big companies, you know, the Microsoft's, Apple's, like Google's at the time, like AOL, Yahoo, as well as worked with smaller startups and little companies, little companies, you know, like Twitter, which back then from 2008 to 2009 to 2010 was a tiny little startup, um, which nobody knew about and, and everyone thought was surely going to die at some point. And so when I joined Google, there was this real kind of tension inside of me, like, you know, am I just selling out? Like, am I going to the big company where it's a lot more stable and secure? You know, I'd, I'd worked at startups. I'd, I'd had my own startups and they had done um, <laughs> meagerly well in some respects, certainly not huge successes, but, you know, they were fine. And um, anyway, so when I got to Google, the idea was that I was going to continue working on a lot of the, the open web formats and standards and protocols that... I was trying to advocate, and me and me and several other people were trying to advocate to really decentralize the social web, to make it possible for there to be interoperability between different social networking platforms to really encourage more innovation and more competition. The fear that we had at the time was that Facebook would come to own your internet identity and that they would then get to determine who could have uh, essentially an account online. And in a lot of ways, we're st we're seeing a lot of the same battles, you know, continue to play out over and over again. Um, and even you know today, in fact, probably more so today than than even back then, um, the web is a lot less prevalent in a lot of people's use of digital technologies relative to what it used to be. And that has a lot to do with the proprietary application platforms that Apple and Google, of course, put out. And of course, Facebook sort of exists on each of those platforms, and you log into Facebook, and you can log into all these other apps, and so on. And, and anyways, so so one of the first projects that I really was working on was um, the social APIs for Google Buzz. And uh, the idea of Google Buzz, I think, for Google was that they wanted to aggregate all of the social data, but they didn't really care about having their own social network. Um, they kind of thought that just like the web before... Um, and the way that Google had aggregated all of the web pages into Google search, you know, you could take your Twitter post and you could take your pounce post and you could take uh, your Flickr post and all this, all the social media that was already out there and just pull it into to Google using um, open standard. Um, and then that way Google wouldn't have to have their own social network. And that would be effectively how they would take on Facebook. And furthermore, because Google is an advertising company that actually would work really well for them because then they would distribute, um, you know, traffic to those sites. And so that was the project that I kind of got started on and I got hired to work on, but the launch just didn't go very well. And if you go back and you read some of the posts around that time, you'll understand that a lot of people had a lot of privacy concerns and confusion around how Google launched Buzz. Um, and as a result, they canned the project after about you know six months. And so suddenly I found myself as a developer evangelist at Google without anything to evangelize. So I had to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I realized two things. One is that a lot of the people at Google had never thought about or built social products before. Um, and they had a lot of actual inhibitions around building social software. They really didn't want, I mean, a lot of people didn't use Facebook at Google. Um, they thought that Facebook was evil or whatever. And so of course they had their own reservations about Google getting into the social networking space. And then as well, 
Google didn't really have much of a developer brand. In fact, it didn't really have one besides Google Code, which was its code hosting um, sort of early competitor to GitHub. But it, it, you know, the design had not been updated since like 2006. So it occurred to me that we really needed a better developer marketing channel for Google. And so I went about creating the Google developers brand and I worked with developer marketing and developer relations to produce the brand and the concept and the website. And then we launched that um, later on uh, at, at Google IO. And so that became Google's um, brand towards developers. Uh, and then shortly after launching that, I sort of became recruited or I, I was recruited over to work uh, on Google Plus um, as a UX designer. And so I spent some time working on like the plus one button and Google login and um, redesigning the Google profile. That's amazing. Like it seems like you were able to kind of capitalize on a lot of really cool projects within Google ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it was super interesting, you know, because on the one hand, like I, I came in with this sort of skepticism about joining this big company, but then I really came to appreciate the culture at Google and what Google was trying to do. And it occurred to me that maybe there was a way to actually create more of, a, of an input output sort of uh, open layer um, between the outside world and what Google was doing. And that's that's kind of like what I what I worked towards. And, I, you know, furthermore, like I also felt that it was very important that um, Google identity was actually useful and valuable. Uh, and at least if there were two on the Internet, two Internet identity providers, you know, Facebook and Google, that would be better than there just being one. And so I think like that's kind of how I was thinking about um, that process playing out. So transitioning from Google and launching a couple of your own startups, today you're currently a part of Uber as a developer experience lead. So can you tell us a bit more about how you created the opportunity to work there and what your role entails? Yeah, so it's actually, it's a funny story. Last summer, uh, I was kind of doing some some independent consulting. You know, I left Google like a year and a half before, and I was kind of just like tooling around doing some consulting for for smaller startups. And I ended up doing this, uh, a podcast recording similar to this actually, uh, with a friend of mine, Chris Saad. And he had recently joined or was about to join Uber as the PM of the API. And so we recorded this podcast and, you know, just had this conversation. And over uh, the subsequent months, you know, he and I continued to stay in touch and to talk about what he was doing at Uber. And um, even as I had, again, these reservations about Uber, uh, you know, the company, I was like, well, Facebook had these reservations about it as well when it was sort of in its early days and in, in its uh, early sort of ascendancy. And a lot of companies that invoke this kind of, or, or evoke rather, this kind of concern, fear, skepticism, doubt are, are changing the, the, the order of things that people are familiar with. So maybe I should really be taking a look at my own sort of concerns and skepticism and sort of locate where that's coming from and what that's about. And to look at this and, and sort of, you know, blur my eyes for a longer period of time, like the five to 10 to 15 year period, um, and to think about where this actually nets out. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized that, you know, transportation is one of those areas that really has not seen a lot of technological innovation. You know, you might get a, like a slightly better sound system in your car or something, but the fundamental way that people move themselves around really hasn't changed that much, you know, since since the advent of the car itself uh, and, the, and the highway system. So if we were to take the internet approach to routing people, where does that lead us? And what would it mean to offer a platform that allows access to that type of mobility? And how would that allow us to change the way that we think about and approach the design of cities? So the fact that Chris was starting this, this uh, platform team was, was, was very, very interesting to me relative to all the platforms that kind of exist out there in the world. And um, you know, the more that we talked about it, the more it seemed like maybe there was an opportunity for me to, to come in and, and help you know, shape the the narrative and the story around that. And so um, in January of this year, that's what I decided to do. And, um, you know, 
he and I kind of carved out this role about, you know, trying to figure out how to bring the right people into the conversation, how to work with brands and companies and um, startups to understand and take advantage of um, the platform that, that it has been building for the last five or six years. And so that's kind of how it's netted out. So as you mentioned before, you're the developer experience lead where you've worked on several teams within Uber, as well as external developers leveraging its technology and network. So how do you balance the internal and external strategy and executing on them? Yeah, it's a super good question. You know, I will say that you know, developer relations is increasingly something that a lot of companies you know, are looking for. And it's one of those career paths that doesn't have a lot of like antecedents. Like you can sort of be an engineer and then realize that you really love community or you love working on open source projects. And so you really exemplify the inside out sort of aspect of developer relations. Being a developer advocate means that you have to have empathy and really care about the experience that the third party developer community has outside of the company and to understand ways of improving that experience. And whether that's through documentation or whether it's through just you know, telling better stories, whether it's through marketing and helping to promote the types of things that the companies and other people are building on your APIs. It requires you to really, I think, be willing to look outside of the success of the company that you work for and to invest in and, and encourage the success of other people. And so um, I think that it was, it was actually very difficult to come up with a role description, like a title that made sense, like developer experience lead is something that I'm continuing, continuing to try to figure out what that actually um, means in practice. But given my experience um, and background in, in user experience design, like end user experience, the idea is to really try to look at holistically the way that a, like a third party developer is going to come to your platform and how they're going to ask questions. You know, what's in it for them? Where's the value? Where's the utility? You know, can I make money off of this directly or indirectly? What type of distribution options or opportunities exist, um, and so on. And so all that stuff sort of then gets synthesized into a picture of of what the needs of this person are. And then you know I kind of work to socialize those needs internally to essentially advocate for that third party perspective um, to a number of different teams. And that's you know primarily on the developer platform team, but then also in terms of BD or leadership and other groups that might determine what you can build on and with Uber. What's next for the Uber development platform? And are there any cool things that you're currently working on that you can share with us? Well, you know, one of the things that we we launched in, in January actually was one of the first projects that I've launched. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, we haven't seen a full on adoption of, of this concept yet. And I think it's because it's too early in some ways. And it's also, ugh, I don't know, maybe maybe we haven't quite figured out exactly the way to, to sort of explain or express it. But we launched this API uh, earlier this year called Trip Experiences, and the the concept is actually pretty straightforward. The idea is that you know whenever you're riding around like in an Uber, you as the rider have some some time on your hands that's kind of rare and unique. You know, if previously you were the one that was driving and you had to stay focused on the road, now all of a sudden you're in a position where you can um, focus on on other things and other tasks. And so for applications, apps, and you know for developers that want to target that time with the user's permission. And um, the rider can essentially grant you access to know whenever they're in an Uber. And you can then take advantage of knowing where they're coming from, where they're going, um, how long it's going to take until they arrive. And you can actually carve out an experience designed to fit those moments. And so we've obviously been doing some work behind the scenes with a number of brands and companies and app builders to understand and take advantage of that of that context, which is a very new type of context. I kind of call it like clairvoyance or like GPS++. Um, because it's really about where someone's about to be as opposed to where they are right now. 
And this is a whole new class of, of information about people that's never really been available before from an API. And I think that's something that you'll start to see more of from both us as well as from like, you know, our partners. And I'm hoping that more and more developers like look to that and see that as, as a chance to, to build something that's new, novel and, um, you know, interesting. I'm looking on the side and there's like the smart thermos and then in the smart lights, like just as you're approaching, like these things can be triggered and turned on. And I love the concept. It's going to be interesting to see what you guys come next with this API. Yeah. And, you know, I think actually, I mean, that's a, that's a really good context, right, to, to make this more real with the connected home. You know, if you're if you're taking an Uber home from work, the house lights can turn on, you know, the, the oven can get started if you're you know making a meal. Like there's just a bunch of things logistically that would be really useful for you to sort of check off your list when you're in that, you know, when you're in the vehicle, as opposed to, okay, you walk through the front door. Now you've got to start the whole list, the laundry list of things that takes, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 minutes to actually get started. And so each of us, I think, are trying to find ways of, of maximizing our days and making ourselves either more efficient or to give ourselves more free time. And that time when you're in, in a car, instead of just browsing Facebook or, or whatever, you could be doing something that's a little more actionable based on what you're about to be doing next. Yeah, that's super cool. I remember reading about that at launch, actually, and uh, then it kind of fell off my radar. Do you have any other examples of like brands or apps or companies that you guys are currently working with to like, you know, continue to grow that ecosystem? Anything you could share with us? Well, I mean, at a, at a high level, because I think, you know, there's going to be some that are going to come out, you know, in the near future. There's a lot of uh, local recommendation um, apps. In fact, one that I can talk about that I think is actually pretty cool is my own personal bot. Though I think this functionality is a little bit flaky right now, and that's more the bot than, than Uber's fault. But essentially, I have, I have a personal bot. It's called Messina Bot. And if you connect your Uber account to my bot, whenever you take an Uber trip someplace, ideally in a place where I've been, um, and I've left Foursquare tips, my bot will look up your destination, and then we'll take that destination and query my Foursquare tips to see if I've left any tips nearby. So essentially, you know, you're driving around like, let's say, Williamsburg, New York or something, and I've been to like some cafe or I've gone to some like cocktail place because those are the two places that I like to go the most. And my bot will basically say, hey, it looks like you're going to like this neighborhood. You know, Chris has left a tip at this place to go get this cocktail or, you know, the coffee's really good here or whatever. And so that's using the Trip Experiences API to basically funnel really actionable, really useful information from a person, i.e. me, been out in the world sort of like and cares about these things so that you can get that information right in the, the right moment as opposed to, you know, you arrive at your destination, you've already picked out where you're going to go, and then you open up Foursquare or Yelp or whatever it is to, to figure out your destination. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. I'll uh, definitely have to remember to check that out the next time I'm in New York. Well, I mean, and I've I've been like all over the world, right? So my tips are not just in New York. It's uh, it's anywhere that that I've been, and obviously San Francisco would be another great place uh, to sort of have that experience. So on that note, bots, messaging, and AI are obviously pretty hot trends right now, and and something you're you're also you know actively interested in, even you know calling it a, a technological revolution in a in a post not too long ago, but. On that trend, you know, about a year ago, you ended up writing uh, a pretty awesome Medium post saying that 2016 was going to be the year of conversational commerce. So what led you to seeing this kind of emerging tread ahead of others? And why do you think it's taken off so quickly? Yeah, it's it's um, it's super bizarre, I guess, uh, in some ways to sort of have written this post and essentially doing like the Babe Ruth, like calling the shot thing and then to have a whole bunch of stuff happen that essentially validates what I was seeing happening. And to put this all in perspective, like I, I wrote a post um, actually a year before this January, essentially saying, hey, like 
I think that conversational commerce is going to be a thing based on looking at a couple different apps that I've, I've played with. One was called Fetch, which allowed you to do shopping over SMS. And then there was another one um, that Path acquired called Talk To. And what it would allow you to do was essentially text message what became Path Talk. And then Path Talk would relay your message to a business by having people somewhere in the world like actually call them on the phone. The people uh, who worked for Talk To and Path Talk would then get whatever the response was. Let's say I'm looking for like hours or I'm like, oh, like, do you guys have any more of those great, you know, muffins that I had the other day? Um, and I'm doing this all over text. Someone from Path Talk would actually call the the um, business, get the answer and then respond back in like five minutes uh, via text. And that was just revelatory. You know, this is at a time when there weren't a lot of businesses that were really proactively using social media to do one-to-one customer service or um, direct interactions. They were using social media largely as a broadcast channel to promote messages and deals and stuff like that, but it was not personalized to an individual. And so that was really interesting. And then of course, you know, you sort of wait a year and you're sort of seeing a lot more things happening in the SMS space um, in the messaging space generally. And you're like, huh, there's a lot of activity and a lot of action here. And it's so much cheaper to prototype and build an app in that context than to build a full-fledged, you know, iOS or Android app. That's really interesting. Um, how, how far can we go with this? And then last December, of course, Uber launched the integration in Facebook Messenger that allows you to request a ride right from the context of a conversation. So if I'm talking to you guys and I'm like, hey, like let's go meet up you know, at this place for coffee, the Facebook Messenger app will detect that I've mentioned a location and then will annotate the little bubble, the chat bubble with a request a ride or ride here. And so you're starting to see how the conversational context becomes this vehicle for delivering services. And that's kind of what I was thinking of with, with the conversational commerce thing, where suddenly the conversation itself becomes the runtime for delivering services and having brands be more proactive in that context. And so the rise of bots as, as, a, as a concept or as a term, I, I would say was sort of latent. You know, we've had bots for quite a while in IRC and Twitter. But when it comes to brands being active in these messaging channels, you know, what is it that you're actually interacting with? Is it a person? Is it, um, is it an app? Is it an, an automated, you know, tool? We've had such bad, you know, experiences with like Clippy and, and things like that, that I think people were ready to encapsulate a whole new concept of, I don't know, of, of, of a service. And also coincident with the rise of machine learning and big computing power, you know, all the Amazon and Google and Microsoft cloud services that allow you to process huge amounts of data and then use natural language understanding or, you know, just computer vision, all this stuff comes together. And suddenly now you can actually have conversations with these platforms and systems. And instead of creating a GUI, you know, a conventional kind of pixel-based interface layer, you can just talk to it. You just express what you want as opposed to having to guess at some designer's esoteric, you know, pixel based uh, interaction paradigm. It's a bunch of words to basically say, we're trying to make software easier to use for people. And conversation happens to be a very accessible, easy way to do that. And so if you take that as your constraint, suddenly it forces you to design software that's a lot easier and, and, and accessible to a much broader range of people than having everyone learn a new piece of software or a new interface paradigm for every app or service that they want to interact with. Yeah, seeing that progression is is awesome and a bit of a tongue twister there to explain that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, well, because there's so much, right? Like it's, it's it's one thing for, you know, to write a blog post that says, hey, you know, I think, you know, bots are going to be big. But to put it into, into the context of the industry and of human behavior and of technological advances and of 
the the hardware platforms and of uh, even like app fatigue, you know, is real. It's like, how many more apps do I need like on my phone, which I can't even like, you know, remember what I downloaded this thing for. You know, it's a real problem. So given that, uh, I think that that created a lot of the the preconditions for something else to pop up. And then, you know, Slack obviously took the the enterprise world by storm. And then all, all of a sudden, like this year, all the messaging platforms have essentially opened up, you know, APIs and platforms that allow developers and brands and third parties to start building apps. And you've got a really, really rich, really interesting, you know, moment in the context of, you know, human computing that I think is incredibly promising. So what is it about bots and messaging that you're most excited about? What do you think the you know medium will continue to evolve into? And you know, if you had to pick a few or, or just share a few examples, what do you think some of the most successful bots to date are? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's two very simple, straightforward answers. One is that computing has historically been, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't sort of say this with a broad brush, but I think it's true that most computing experiences are designed for the single player mode. And so computing, as we mostly experience it, has been antisocial. I mean, it was, you know, 2016 is the year that iCloud finally allowed collaboration, for example, in like Keynote and Pages and stuff like that. And of course, that's after years of Google being out there with, you know, Google Docs and, and so on being more collaborative. But of course, the interface for that is, is pretty, well, I mean, it's fine, but it, it, it's derived from Microsoft um, Word. So the history of social computing is relatively uh, young, I would say. And so messaging by its very nature is communal and group-based much more easily than apps. You know, apps sort of have a screen and there's a user and like that's, that's, the, that's the interaction paradigm. In the messaging context, because you can have multiple parties who are participating, now you can actually bring in one, two, or three, or multiple bots and have one, two, three, or 10 people, or even thousands of people, uh, like on Telegram, which I think is incredibly interesting and, and incredibly powerful, um, because now you start to see interactions occur in this shared context. And what that means is a couple things. One, it means that people will learn from each other a lot more quickly. You know, it's very hard for me to teach someone how to use an app over a phone call, right? Like maybe if you're super advanced, you could do screen sharing and kind of be like, oh, so you tap here and then you swipe this and then you, you know, move this here and that's fine. But only the most basic uh, interaction models, I think, are, are able to be sort of taught socially in that way. Whereas if you're in the context of a, of a group conversation, like on Slack or Telegram, um, and I don't think that Messenger has opened up, but maybe it's about to open up bots and groups. You can see how other people interact with a bot and then emulate that behavior. I mean, this is essentially how the hashtag got adopted. It was like people just saw other people using it to get uh, discovered by labeling their content on Instagram and Twitter. And then they emulated that behavior and then hashtags kind of you know took on a life of their own. So in a similar way, I see a similar opportunity for bot makers to find similar you know behavioral conventions to educate other people about how to use bots. Okay, so that's that's one piece, the group context. The other piece is about bot-to-bot -bot interaction. And before that gets too dirty, you know, think about all the APIs that exist where you're connecting one app to another app or you're connecting, you know, I use a journaling app called Day One and it allows me to store my journal entries in Dropbox. So I'm like connecting Day One to Dropbox. Okay, great. Or, you know, Visco, uh, which is one of those camera apps, um, you know, allows you to share to, let's say, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, so there's all these sort of app-to-app -app connections that are happening, but it's very manual and it requires the user to be part of each of those interactions. I think increasingly, the thing that's interesting about bots is that they can negotiate interactions on behalf of users in a way that previously would have been very difficult or would have kept you out of 
I guess, unaware of, of what's actually happening in terms of these systems uh, sharing and distributing your information. So that becomes super interesting um, when, for example, you know, let's say that I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm visiting your office and I'm coming in for lunch and I have a personal bot and my bot knows my preferences because I've checked into a bunch of places on Swarm over the years. And it seems that I like, you know, Thai food or, you know, spicy food or, or whatever. And the person who's ordering lunch wants to get everyone's preferences. Well, if you invite me into a Slack channel and then you have a lunch ordering bot, that lunch ordering bot can then ask me for my permission to talk to my bot to get my preferences. And then the lunch ordering bot will, of course, do that with, I don't know, the 15 other people that are also wanting to get lunch. And it can figure out the best option for all of us. Now, maybe that's a contrived example, but the point is that bot to bot sharing of information is another dimension that becomes incredibly interesting and opportunistic in a way that currently app-to-app connections require you know, developers to actually think really hard about which apps are going to connect to, and it then therefore limits the number of possible permutations of, of APIs that they might connect to. So that opportunism, I think, is, is super interesting, especially at a local level where you know, local apps or local service providers could do a much better job of meeting the needs of the local market. And it allows for a much more vibrant, competitive landscape for app makers in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds so cool listening to you talk about it. I just can't wait for it to get here. (laughs) Right. I mean, and this is like, uh, this is going to happen and it's going to happen in fits and starts in different places around the world. But, you know, you're already starting to see whether it's like airlines or hotels starting to, to be interested in, in connecting, you know, with your information, with your data and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out and what's the useful data versus what's not. But actually, I mean, so so one example is that there's um, there's a bot, it's called LazySet. So LazySet will basically take like a couple song or a couple artists and will generate like a, a playlist for you. But you can imagine like, um, and there, there are others, of course, um, that are in the same vein. They're starting to use your music preferences to help with discovery and then socializing that information. I think that's that's incredibly promising. And of course, music is one of those those cases that's very, very personal but incredibly useful if you can deliver really good uh, results and recommendations that someone wouldn't have otherwise experienced um, through these types of deep learning systems. That's cool. Definitely have to check a a few of those out. So if you could send yourself a five-minute message back in time before you started your career, what would you tell yourself? You know, if anything, I think that, and and in some ways, it's a little bit useless to to think about that question because there's this this question of determinism about if I were to tell myself this, <laughs> knowing myself and knowing how stubborn I can be, would I actually listen to myself? And so in some ways, what I would want to sort of coach myself on, you know, let's say if it was like 10, 10 years ago when I was first arriving to Silicon Valley, you know, it would be to have, you know, more faith and confidence in your ability to to synthesize information and to think about things um, independently or as an independent independent person. As I've seen a number of things that I've been involved with in the last you know decade and and so on, there there are some projects that I stuck to, but I had a lot of like doubt or you know fear along the way. You know, I think the hashtag is one of those examples where it's easy for me to look back now and kind of be excited about being able to take a, uh, take credit for this idea that like I, I brought to the world, but there was a lot of moments in there where I just was like, yeah, maybe this is really a stupid idea. You know, this is, uh, when I brought the idea to Twitter, that's what they, that's what they told me. And I'm like, well, they must know better than me. They must know something that I don't know. And clearly they're successful. They've sold the company to Google already. What do I know? You know, as this like stupid little person. And I think those doubts have persisted throughout my career um, in a lot of different moments. And I guess to go back and sort of, you know, coach myself to say, you know, 
you have a different perspective. You have a different way of seeing things. It's going to be painful at times and it's going to be difficult because not everyone's going to understand what you see, the way you see it. But recognize that that's actually a gift and that in some ways it's natural and normal for people to have skepticism um, and doubts about things that they don't understand or things that they don't see. But to hold on to your faith in, in the things that you're looking at, to take a very, I think, you know, open-minded approach, be willing to take in that feedback and, and skepticism and learn how to adjust maybe the way that you talk about things or how forceful you are or to try to incorporate other people's perspectives into what you're doing, um, to not be defensive, but to be persistent. And I think in those cases where I have been persistent and I have believed in something and I have continued to like take in more feedback and to refine my perspective, it's really worked out, you know? And I'd also say like maybe another thing that looking back now, I'm really glad that this is just kind of naturally in my, I don't know, my values or the way that I approach things. It's like really caring about and investing in other people's success has done really well for me. And in an era where we're hyper-networked and super connected to lots and lots of people, there's a lot of people out there who are really just focused on their own success and wanting to get themselves ahead. And, you know, that's fine, but that actually really, I think, creates weak bonds um, in your overall network. And so I think for me, I've tried to think about ways that I can help amplify what other people are doing and to bring attention to what other people are doing. And in turn, that's led, you know, fortunately, in some respects, for them to, to want to also see me succeed. So that, that mesh of success is something that I'm really happy to, I guess, naturally express in, in, in the way that I work. Um, and that's worked out really well. So that's a, that's a great message back to yourself. That's a, that's a great way to put, great way to put it. But on another note, do you have any like great apps or bots that you've downloaded and are using right now? Yeah. One, one that I, I, um, I discussed actually a bit and it's not really a bot per se, but it's, a, it's an example of the new, of using the messaging channel as an interesting publishing context. You know, like if you look at the way that publishing contexts uh, and mediums rather have evolved over time, blogging was one of the first, you know, web activities that became really popular and accessible. And you were taking a, a pretty conventional model of publishing, like news stories, where you have a title and you have an author and you have like a body and it kind of like goes on for, you know, however many hundreds of words. And then Twitter came along and saw that Rather than using like a desktop or laptop computer for publishing, you could actually use your mobile phone. And the thing that was most accessible on mobile phones, you know, back in 2007 was text messaging. And so text messaging, SMS, becomes this new channel for publishing. And so you kind of get rid of the whole body of your story and you just take the title and that suddenly is like, you know, a tweet. And that's a new medium for expressing what's going on in the world in a, in a highly efficient way. We're now entering into another moment where the messaging context is going to become a new publishing paradigm. And one of these apps that I, app, I don't even know what to call it. One of these accounts that I uh, really enjoy is called Purple. And the concept is, is essentially to kind of look at the divide between the red and the blue side in, in American politics and to provide some uh, analysis and insight into what's going on uh, with, a, with a perspective. And... Um, Rebecca Harris is um, the the founder and creator. I think she writes most of the content. She has a really good uh, perspective. I think she writes very well. It's it's clearly articulated, and it's using the messaging context in kind of a choose your own adventure way to provide daily insights in term, in terms of what's going on in the world. And I find it so much more engaging and so much more satisfying than, for example, the CNN or Twitter bots on Messenger that just take their RSS feeds and republish it. 
I mean, as, as I understand it, I guess you can ask CNN some questions, but I never have. Whereas in purple, it feels more accessible and like I'm talking to a real person. And so when I ask questions about what's going on, I actually get a human response. So I think that's that's really interesting um, because it demonstrates why this platform is different and, and interesting and valuable relative to all the platforms that came before. You know, you can leave comments and blog posts and stuff like that, but it it goes away very quickly, especially if it's a highly or very popular, you know, blog or, or news outlet. In the case of messaging, you have an intimate one-to-one interaction with the author, and it allows you, I think, to remove a lot of the gross stuff that that people are looking for in public comment forums, you know, to sort of make someone else feel or look stupid or, or, or whatever. So so that's one that I find is um, is pretty great. You know, there's a couple that are in this category of image processing that I think are kind of interesting. They're essentially like Instagram filters on demand through the messaging context. And so one of them is called Icon 8, literally the word icon and then the number 8. And it's available on Messenger and Telegram. And they're essentially, it's sort of like, I don't know if you've used Prisma, but Prisma is another one of these kind of digital art filter apps um, where you provide a photo and then it modifies it in some kind of you know neat or clever way. Icon 8 has kind of consistently put out pretty decent filters and they'll notify you when they have like new stuff that's out and available. And so it's just kind of like, they're like toys, but they're, they're demonstrating how this channel can be useful for re-engagement. You know, like I have no idea when Instagram puts out a new filter unless they blog about it or something. But in this case, they're building up this relationship with me over time such that, you know, I'm always excited to see like what their latest, you know, like trick is. Uh, there's, oh, there's another one that I think is actually, so there's two that I've recently experienced that are really interesting. The first is the, is a bot for Westworld. I don't know if you guys have watched Westworld yet, but it just came out on HBO. And it's kind of about this future where instead of being about a virtual or augmented reality, I mean, I suppose it is actually an augmented reality, you're able to essentially interact with you know synthetic humans or hosts in these adventures. And so if you go to whatever the, the URL is for Westworld, uh, it's, it's, um, it's actually kind of like a fake dummy site for visiting this world where you can have these adventures. It's kind of like, you know, if, if Jurassic Park were made up of, of human hosts as opposed to dinosaurs, there's a bot that you can interact with on the site to learn about the characters and to have this sort of interaction. And it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I, I imagine we'll see a lot more TV shows that do the same thing. And then the other one is called, um, uh, let's see, it's Persona Th- Synthetics. Let's see, what's, yeah, it's facebook.com slash Persona Synthetics. And it's a bot that was designed to accompany uh, a show called Humans. But it actually is a character that you interact with, and it really brings you into the story and into the into the dialogue in a way that um, I think the Westworld bot doesn't quite do. And so I would highly recommend folks like try these out and see what it's like, because what these channels are doing, what these bot makers are doing is they're really playing with character design, with interaction, with conversation design. There's sort of a new emerging field called KUI, like conversation user interface, and it's really interesting to see how they're pushing the edge of these interactions where it almost feels like you're talking to a real person. And uh, there's actually, there's one more in this, in this realm, which is put out by uh, the, the, the folks who make Luca, which is called replica. And the idea is that you're talking to this bot on a semi-regular basis. And right now it's over SMS, which is a little awkward, but it's fine. And um, as you talk to it, it learns how you talk and then wants to become kind of like your replica or your avatar. It starts to emulate your speech. And so I, I suppose, similar to like the Messina bot, which right now doesn't really sound that much like, like me, if I were able to train the Messina bot to actually sound like me, like the way that I talk to people over text, you start to enter into this really interesting world of augmented humans where we're extending ourselves into the internet, a la the matrix, and in a way that will have, of course, profound and 
really difficult to predict, you know, outcomes. So what's just insane is that this stuff is actually happening and that the tools are actually coming out and that creatives are starting to really think about and approach this space in a way that moves beyond just technologists, you know, building kind of utility bots that, you know, tell you when the latest, like, you know, build completed or uh, when the latest GitHub issue came in or, or whatever. So those are, those are some that I've seen recently that I think are really interesting and compelling. Yeah, it's really cool. I actually have been playing around with Icon 8 before and actually just got the notification the other day of that new filter, but uh, I'll have to check out some of the other ones. So, you know, we could be here for hours, you know, talking together, but do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? You know, the last couple of years for me since leaving Google have been pretty interesting just in terms of personal growth and doing a lot of work to, to understand, I guess, you know, myself, myself in relationships, others, um, the way that I connect to people, how, you know, open I'm, I'm able or willing to be. And I think that that work, which is largely outside of, you know, the te technology, you know, context altogether has been incredibly valuable um, because we're going to move into an era where the, our software and technology needs to become a lot more empathetic and to show, I think, I don't know, more concern and caring for people. You know, we're sort of in this this weird world right now where our technology is so cold and so acerbic and so, uh, I don't know, maybe just socially isolating. You know, I think a lot of us struggle to, you know, with some pretty deep feelings of, of loneliness, um, you know, in the world. And, and it's, it's funny because we're living in this world, of course, of, of tons and tons of, of social media and social networking. So you'd think that we'd be, we would be more connected um, and more empathetic and have more compassion for more people than ever. But that's really not the case. And so I think it's, it's actually necessary for software developers and designers, for app builders, to really kind of do that personal work, to dig into like their own shit and their own issues and to, to sort of come to a place of understanding themselves so that as they build software and technology, they're, they're working on a worldview that is a lot more inclusive and a lot more diverse than, um, than it has been up until now. Um, I think software needs to become a lot more humane. And I guess one of the reasons why I'm so excited about the messaging and bot space is that it's a new context for us to really try and push that edge. And so it's not so much like a motto or anything like that, but I have always thought that there's an opportunity to continually make things better and that that's what we sort of, you know, should be focused on as opposed to, let's say, cementing our own position in place, defending that position and holding on to it at all costs. Um, I guess that's why, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley and I love technology is that it's very much about continuing to improve things or at least aspirationally to improve things and then to figure out how more and more people can be enfranchised by those improvements. That's a great way to end the episode. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Tyler and I greatly appreciate it. We had a lot of fun uh, having you on today. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do it without your awesome support, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next week, and we hope you enjoy the show.